So I have a pre-Christmas gift for you. No, a voice from not far, as far away as Chile, though it is a gift to have Chip in our midst today. Um, I have someone here today to, for you to preach to you and me God's word, who is all the way from Boston, Massachusetts. Ever heard of it? Uh, Andrew Kerhulis is the pastor of spiritual formation at City Life Church in Boston proper. Yeah, I hear that. And uh, he is married to Anne. They have two twin daughters who are 18 months old who are back with grandma back in Boston. But this morning, Andrew is here in town, and we thought we'd take an opportunity to hear from him to preach. Um, In the words of John Calvin, Andrew, good luck. And But at this time, I wonder if you might welcome Andrew to preach God's word to us. All right. Is this on? Okay, you can hear me. Good. Thank you, Patrick. And I want to say thank you to everyone that I've met so far. Um, My wife and I have been welcomed, and I have honestly... Just, but we've been shown so much hospitality. You know, it's the South, and we're used to now living in Boston for about 10 years. I grew up in Highlands, so about an hour from here. But, uh, you know, coming back down South always feels like coming home, and we have just been welcomed. So thank you. Thank you to the session for inviting us down. We're so happy to be here. And I am truly privileged to be able to preach this morning to relieve this guy, which I've heard rarely happens. So, so. Um, happy to be here. And one other thing, just to encourage you, um, you know, sometimes when, you're, when you've been in a church for a long time, it's easy to sort of um, lose sight of what God might be doing because it's so normal. This is so, uh, this is where you've been. This is kind of the waters you're swimming in. So for me coming in from the outside, it's just so apparent that God is at work in your church. Um, and I just want to encourage you that God is here and he is working amidst you. And uh, it's just so obvious. So it's been fun uh, getting to know some of you. And I hope to meet some of you. If you want to, you know, hear about what it's like to live in a city where, you know, we win championships a lot. Um, I'll be right outside here um, waiting for you. So, all right. Um, you know, as you've heard this morning, Advent uh, means to come to. It means arrival. And in this season, we're, we're sort of symbolically waiting with ancient Israel, um, who 2,000 years ago or so, and even before in Isaiah, 2,800 years ago, were waiting for the Messiah to come. So we're symbolically waiting with them, but we're supposed to do more than just symbolically wait in this season. In the here and now, in real time, in this present moment, we are waiting for the second coming of Jesus. We're waiting. Karl Barth said that uh, the Christian life is kind of always spent in Advent, waiting, the season of waiting. And what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the second coming of Jesus and the renewal of all things, where all the crooked things get straightened out. When he comes, he's going to make all things new. And so we're waiting in this season. We're remembering that we're waiting for Jesus to come again. We're in this time between. That's a good way to think about life. Time between his advents, his first and second coming. And in the, in the time between, we wait. How many of you, you don't have to wait, raise your hand, but how many of you like to wait? I don't think any of us would raise our hands, actually. Don't like waiting. 
And I want to say, we don't like to wait, especially in hard seasons of life, when things are hard. So as Patrick mentioned, we have 17-month-old, almost 18-month-old twin daughters. They're identical. Um, They are a handful. We love them. But if I'm glowing this morning, it's not just because of the light. It's because we've had two days (laughs) where we've slept, where we got to just be together like old times, my wife and I. It's been amazing. Grandma, I said, I'm, you know, I'm Presbyterian, but I'm thinking about bringing sainthood back, you know, just for her, <laughs> just for St. Judy. So for, for my wife and I lately, it's been the hardest to wait patiently about two hours before bedtime. Parents in the house are like, I get you. I know. Are there any twin parents in the room? Just by the way, I, it's kind of fun. Oh, wow. A few of you. Great. This is great. So all, I mean, you guys know better than us that witching hour is real. It's real in our house anyway. And it's, it's when mommy and daddy and the babies are all crying out, come Lord Jesus. I just, I just need bedtime to come. We are crying out to the Lord. You know, but seriously, um, I think it, it, it really is hardest to wait when things are hard. It's the hardest to wait on God. And, you know, if, if I can get weary uh, waiting for my, girl, my precious girls to go to sleep, how much more susceptible are we to frustration, to disillusionment, when we're waiting for Jesus to return? Because life is hard. Life is full of darkness. In between these advents, we go through difficulty and seasons of sorrow and, and brokenness, do we not? And I think it can foster doubt in our hearts. It can, um, you know, we can be, instead of being full of expectation, we can be doubtful. We can um, be apathetic instead of engaged with God and with other people. And, and that's what I think waiting in the midst of hard seasons can, can uh, lead us to. You know, it's, it's likely that God hasn't worked on your timeline. Amen? It's like, God, I want you to do this by Friday. I need it by Friday. And sometimes he doesn't work like that. Sometimes he takes longer. And, you know, I think when we're waiting and God doesn't kind of work on our timeline, we can get really disillusioned. And I think we can even forget that we're waiting for him at all. We can get so numb uh, to life and we can forget who we are. We can forget that he's coming back. And we can even forget to pray and ask him to come into our presence. However, if any of this describes you, you're not alone. You're just like me. But there's hope. There's hope for you. And that's because God gives us exactly what we need uh, to wait. Exactly what you need to wait. And from this passage, uh, we, we see that he, he gives us three things. Presbyterian, got to be three, or it doesn't work. All right, so first, he gives us a holy encounter. He gives us a gracious remedy. And he gives us a willing heart. A holy encounter, a gracious remedy, and a willing heart. And if you're able, um, I'd love to invite you to stand. We'll read uh, this passage from this morning. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. 
And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. You didn't have to send your word, but you did. Because you want us to know about you. You want us to have a relationship with you. You want us to talk with you. And Lord, you speak back. So Lord, help us to listen. Help us to be present to you. Uh, even though life is probably crazy for all of us right now in this season. But Lord, teach us to wait and give us what we need to wait in between these advents, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, so first, a holy encounter. You know, so Patrick has preached on this book for a few months now, and he actually preached in this text, many of you remember, um, back in September. So some of this is going to be very familiar to you. Um, but I want to quickly set the stage if, if this is a, you know, a new passage for you this morning. So right before Isaiah describes this holy encounter that he has with God, he tells us when it happened. Right? He says it happened in the year that King Uzziah died. And from Second Chronicles 26, we know that King Uzziah was a very um, good, mil- very brilliant military leader. And under King Uzziah, the people of God were very prosperous, and what happened was they grew very proud, and they essentially forgot all about God. They forgot who they were. They forgot who he was, and so they essentially followed him into spiritual complacency. The people of God were complacent. They were apathetic. And I want to show you just a few examples. You've probably seen some of them over the past few months. But chapter 1, it says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. They have forsaken the Lord. Chapter 2, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands. Chapter 5, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. And one commentator sort of summarized it this way. The whole nation followed their king into complacency, and God's patience with them finally ran out. 
So God's people had become apathetic in this waiting for the Messiah to come. You know, so there 2,800 years ago, Jesus hadn't come on the scene yet. Isaiah prophesies a lot about him, which you've, many of you have heard already this semester. And in that period of waiting, they had failed to wait. And God says, because you've forsaken me, because you've forgotten how to be my people, to love others, to love me more than anything, I'm going to judge you for it. And 20 years later, Assyria invaded and led them into exile, as he promised. But notice, this is what I want to draw out, that in this state of spiritual apathy and malaise, God showed up. This state, not the state of cleaning yourself up or going to church every week, but in the state of numbness to God, he shows up and transforms this man's life. And that's what he can do for you this morning if you find yourself in a similar state. He came to a people that were least expecting him to come. And so with that in the background, let's look at Isaiah's encounter with God. Verses 1 through 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So Isaiah's in the temple one day when it happened. He's going about his normal religious business. He's kind of similar to a pastor. We're going to church on Sunday. Isaiah's going to the temple, just like he normally does, like a good religious person would do, going through the motions. And there, on that particular day, he sees something, or rather someone, that he was least expecting to see. Ironically, the man of God wasn't expecting to see God at all or encounter him, but that's what happened. God shows up, and he sees the exalted Lord of hosts sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up. So all this language, some of it might be familiar to you, but just a reminder, all this language about God describing him is just emphasizing his majesty. He's a king like no other. He's high and lifted up on a throne. And the train of his robe is another name for the hymn. I should have borrowed a, a robe from Patrick just as a prop because apparently he used to preach in a robe, right? So I've never preached in one, but I should have today, next time. But so the hymn is just like the edge. It's just the edge of the robe. And he says it fills the entire temple. It was, scholars say that it was about 180 feet long. So, you know, think of like a football field and about 90 feet wide. So just the edge, the border of the robe. Not him, but just the border. Sorry, not, not the one on the throne, but just the border of that which he wore filled the whole temple. So imagine how massive the person on the throne was. Filling this entire room twice, just the edge of his garment. Think about that. Imagine that. So if Isaiah can't even get past the greatness of the hem of his robe, Imagine the greatness of the one wearing the robe. Just a couple other details I want to bring out. So God's attendants are seraphim. You may know it means burning ones. Burning ones. That's such a cool idea. Just think about that. These flames of pure and endless praise. These creatures 
a pure and endless fiery praise. I don't know. Next, next time we sing, we should have some, some fiery praise going on, you know? You know, they, but the thing I want to point out is they have all these wings, right? With two they fly, with two they cover their eyes and their feet. And those, the, the, the ones that are covering their eyes and their feet are signs of humility before God. But they're, they're sinless beings. Why should they be humble? They're sinless. They're perfect. Why be humble when you got everything together? But this is why A.W. Tozer, there's a quote I want you to look at. We must not think of God as the highest in an assort and ascending order of beings. God is as high above a seraphim as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates them is but finite, while the gulf between God and the seraphim is infinite. And this is why they humble themselves. Because he's beyond categories. He's actually, that's what that word holy is getting at, in a category all by himself. And this triple holy, 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 used here, this is the only time it's used in the the Hebrew Bible, uh, emphasizes his superlative character, his superlative moral character. So it's not just like his ontological difference, right? It's not just that he he in, in himself is different and and greater, but it's his character that's so much greater than anyone else, even the seraphim. So it's basically perfection times perfection times perfection, each word exponentially boosting the force of the previous one. It's only used here, and it's only used for this person seated upon the throne. The superlative character of God. So I was, again, I was uh, raised in Highlands, but I was born in Brevard just a few miles away, and I went to Highlands High School and um, graduated in 2005, and you know every year you get, or seniors get like senior superlatives, do you guys remember those things? So somehow I got Mr. Highlands High School, and before you're impressed in any way, there were only about 14 other guys to choose from. So uh, there was a really good chance I was going to get at least a decent superlative. Um, so I don't know how I got that. But, you know, the odds were really good. But I think for, for God, he is so high above anyone else and everyone else that they had to invent a superlative for him. He's that great. And this is why John Piper says on this slide, in the end, language runs out. In the word holy, we have sailed to the world's end and the utter silence of reverence and wonder and awe. There may yet be more to know of God, but that will be beyond words. God is beyond our categories. He's beyond words. He's holy. But I want you to notice something you Right after they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, it says, the whole earth is full of his glory. And this matters because it means that the Holy One, high and lifted up, is not somewhere up there in the clouds, distant from you, impersonal. God, this holy God, 
came right into Isaiah's space and said, I want to know you. I want you to know me. Do you realize that it's God's will to bring his holiness into your life? To bring his presence into your life no matter what season you're in, spiritually speaking, emotionally speaking? He wants to come into your life. He wants you to know him. That's what we see from the story and so many others, countless others in the Bible. He doesn't need you, right? He's perfect. He's complete in and of himself, but he wants you. He desires to know you. He loves you. So in Advent, we remember that God is always coming in our direction. Always. That's the kind of God he is. But the question I want you to mull over this morning, he's always coming in our direction. But do you ever wait for him? Do you let him love you? Do you ever move towards him? We're usually so, uh, I'm usually so self-absorbed that when I come to church, I can not expect much from God at all. And I'm a pastor. I'm just being honest. I can so relate to this man, this prophet. I'm so self-focused. But look, there's hope for you if you're like me. God comes and changes this man's life. And he can do the same for you. If you're in a season of malaise, of apathy, there's hope. There's a remedy for that. And that's my second point. God gives us a gracious remedy. Let's look at verse 5 together. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me is a cry of dereliction, a cry of despondency. The NIV translated, I am ruined. Remember, in chapter 5, we just kind of glanced at it earlier. But Isaiah spoke a word of woe on God's people who had forgotten God. And here, he uses that same word upon himself. Woe is me. Woe is me. The holy God had come into an unholy person's space and he wanted to die. God is much too beautiful, much too wonderful, awesome, holy, perfect for anyone to not be ruined in his presence. That's something that we glean from this passage. I want to read another quote for you that you may have heard before. A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So when you think about God, just take a second, think about him. You may have a million things to do before the day's end, but just set that aside and think about God. Just imagine him. Who do you imagine? Who do you imagine? I think my view of God is still much too small. Much too small. Much too safe. Much too saccharine and easygoing. I may like God's love, but do I functionally ignore his holiness 
Do I functionally ignore his holiness, that he's so different than me? He's so much greater than I am. How do I know if my view of God is too small? Well, I can lack humility before him. Instead of adoration, I settle for admiration. And I'm self-absorbed rather than absorbed with God and with other people. Those are some litmus tests. How do I know my God's too small? Not much humility, not much adoration, and not much interest in other people or him. That's a good litmus test. But let's look at verse 5 one more time. Because the way we view God shapes our whole life. It shapes everything we do. And Isaiah's view of God made him humble. Made him humble. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So when Isaiah saw God and encountered him, he finally saw himself and other people around him accurately. You know, in in 2019, we really want to be self-aware, don't we? Self-awareness is a, is a good thing. But see this, to be truly self-aware and not under illusions about yourself or about others, we must encounter the holy God. When Isaiah honestly saw himself, he was first in dread before him. Why wouldn't God kindle his wrath against him? He's just as guilty as anyone else. He's just as apathetic as anyone else. Until we say, I'm just like anyone else, if not for the grace of God, our hearts will stay numb, we'll be self-absorbed, and we'll just go through the religious motions. Until we say, if not for the grace of God, I'm just like you, I'm just like anyone else. Whoever in your mind is the worst person or the worst people, Until you say, I'm actually just like them. If anything, I'm worse because I pretend. We're good church people. We're good at pretending. But until we're honest and really see God for who he is, we're going to stay numb. We're just going to go through the motions. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to spend my life going through the motions. right? Don't you want a life full of meaning, a life full of love and purpose, sacrifice? A life full of joy. And this is what we can have, but we must first honestly assess ourselves in light of this holy God. So I grew up as a pastor's kid. And uh, I was actually a pretty good kid. I was. I'm a middle brother, so we have four. There's four uh, children in the family. I'm the middle brother. Um... And, you know, for a while there, I thought I was Mr. HHS for a reason. <laughs> you know, I was a good kid. But it wasn't until college that I realized that I was going through the motions religiously with God. And my heart was just as absorbed with myself as my friends who were getting drunk all the time and partying or, you know, kind of running from God. But it, in college, I, uh, through the ministry of, of Tim Keller and I listened to his sermons voraciously, and uh, his book, for me, Prodigal God, utterly transformed my life because I realized that as a religious person, I could be just as far away from God as anyone else. 
Or do we just hide? And God broke through, though. He came to me. And instead of judgment on this pastor's kid who should have been close to God but wasn't, who shouldn't have been self-absorbed but he was, he showed me grace. And it changed my life. Just like he did to Isaiah. And just like he can do for you. And I want you to look at how God responds to Isaiah's humble cry. Instead of having his anger kindled against him, God brands Isaiah with his white-hot grace and forgives him, and it transformed him forever. Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So Isaiah had encountered the holy God, and he was humbled. And God's grace met Isaiah where he needed it most. That's what I want you to see. Where Isaiah needed it most. My lips are unclean, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. The seraphim touches him there. And the altar, you may know, was the place where the priests would make sacrifices to, for the sins of the people. That there would be atonement at one. Unholy people, holy God at one. And from that place, probably, the seraphim, this burning one, brands him with his grace. The holy encounter does not kill Isaiah as he feared. Instead, he was healed. His sins atoned for. But you may be thinking to yourself, and you should, that was 2,800 years ago. That's a long time. Where's the modern flaming coal that would hit my life, that would touch my life, as it were? Let me ask, where do you need God's grace most right now? Are there wounds in your past? Do you need his healing touch in a relationship? Is it a sin pattern you can't seem to shake? Memories? And if only God would bring his grace there, then you'd be okay. Then you might just not be numb anymore and follow Jesus and love him and love other people. But you're waiting. You're waiting for his healing touch. I want to implore you this morning to see that he has indeed shown up in your life. And in fact, he's showing up in your life right now by his spirit. but probably not in the way that you expected. Some guy from Boston's here preaching. You don't even know me, most of you. But could God be speaking to you this morning through a nobody from Boston? Could he? Could he be speaking to you this morning and saying, I want to come into your life. I want to bring my healing touch into your life today. Just like in Isaiah's case. And in John chapter 12, John says that after Jesus had done many signs and wonders, they still did not believe in him. Sometimes we're looking for signs, and that's a natural thing. But in, in this space in John 12, they, Jesus did all these amazing things that would have wowed the world, probably would have wowed us, but they still didn't believe in him. They still didn't believe he was the king, the savior, who would come 
And then Jesus quotes Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, some of the verses from this morning, about their hardness of heart, their numbness of heart. And just after this, John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who is he referring to? He's talking about Jesus. John said the one that Isaiah was talking about who was seated upon the throne was none other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus was the one that Isaiah saw in the temple that day, high and lifted up. This means that the Holy One of God, the Holy One of Israel, is coming and has come for us. And later in Isaiah, as you've heard, many of you have heard this fall, the prophet describes the future coming of a suffering servant. The most holy one of heaven who stepped off of his holy throne to come to earth in the most humble way imaginable. The holy God became a helpless baby. Parents in the room, helpless baby, right? They're helpless. God, the one on the throne, became like that. But why? He took on human flesh and broke into our unholy world at Christmas for you, for me, for unholy people. And this holy, holy, holy king would live as a servant, perfectly trusting his father no matter what, even if it meant that he would be beaten and whipped and tried in a kangaroo court. And the king Isaiah saw in the temple that day was nailed to a cross and lifted high. He was high and lifted up, bleeding for you. And he hung there to make atonement for our sin, each and every one of them, until his heart stopped and death took him. But the good news is that three days later, he rose victorious over sin and death, your sin, my sin, and he defeated them both. And after his glorious resurrection, he ascended back to heaven. And what did he do? He sent his ambassador, which in Acts chapter 2, it manifests itself how? As flames of fire. The holy fire of God entering into his people because their sins are taken away because they're new, because they're his, because he came in their direction and he comes in ours every day by his word, by his spirit. When we gather together, we come into his presence, the one who was high and lifted up on the cross for you and for me. And this God, the one that Isaiah saw, doesn't just give you a remedy. He makes you willing to live for him and to wait for him. And that's my last point. He gives us a willing heart. Let's read verse 8 really quick. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. I want you to notice this is the first time that God speaks to Isaiah in this passage. He asks, Who will go to my rebellious people and share my message, even though you're going to be rejected for it, right? Just like Jesus was rejected, you're going to be rejected too. And Isaiah says, I'll go. 
He was commissioned to a people that weren't going to like him very much, that were actually going to reject him altogether. We will be rejected too, oftentimes. And in between Advents, we were given a willing heart, though, to wait and to go, right? Because waiting isn't just twiddling our thumbs. When we're waiting on God, we're not just sitting in our room saying, Jesus, when are you coming? (laughs) No, he commissions us to go, as we've heard this morning, to go to the nations, to go to our neighbors, to go to our hurting brother or sister, to go to our family, to go to our kids, to go to our wives, husbands, to go. As we wait, we go to bear witness to the grace that we've received in Jesus, even if we're rejected. So we advent to others, as it were. We arrive with love for others because that's what God has done for us. Like Isaiah, we go to other people just like Jesus commissions us to do. So all the rest of the Great Commission, as we quoted earlier, prayed about earlier, all the rest, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command is all contingent on going. We can't do any of the, the things he's called us to if we don't go. So as we wait, we go. So before I close, I want to share just a quick story of application. I hope uh, you can apply somewhat to your life. So, right, as we're waiting for his return, it's still hard. You may know all these things up here, and hopefully it started to enter into here, not just because I preached a book, because you've been a part of this church, many of you for a long time. It's entered into here, but it's still hard. It's still hard to wait. And this is something that always happens to me when I preach. God kind of shows up unexpectedly, right? Sounds familiar to Isaiah. And I was reading, um, as I always do before bed, to my girls from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Anybody heard of that? It's great. It's great. Fantastic. I like it a lot more than my girls do. Um, So it was just after witching hour, okay? So daddy is tired, calling out for Jesus to come and rescue me. Um, I'm tired, but God came. And I wanted to share this because he spoke right to my heart. So I was reading... um, the story based on Luke chapter 8, the story of Jairus and the unclean woman. And so you may know that Jairus' 12-year-old daughter is dying in the story. She's dying, and, and Jairus is desperate, and he goes and begs Jesus. Here's Jesus, the miracle worker is in town, and he goes, he runs, he sprints to him and says, Jesus, please come and heal my daughter. She's dying. And he agrees to come. Jairus thinks to himself, Jesus is coming. Everything's going to be okay. And you may know the story, right? On his way, he's interrupted by a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And she's desperate too. She's desperate for a healing touch from Jesus. And through the crowd, she wades, right? If only I could touch what? The hem of his garment. The one who was seated upon the throne that day whose hymn filled the whole room with glory, now filled this woman with life. Amen. But I want you to notice this, because I think this relates to all of us. Because Jesus was interrupted by this woman who needed his healing touch, Jairus' daughter died. Jesus didn't come fast enough. Jesus tarried. And his 
most precious thing in all the world was taken. Jairus is heartbroken. But what does Jesus say in the Jesus Storybook Bible? says, don't be afraid. Just believe. And it goes on to say, and then Jesus reached down into death. He stooped down into death and brought her back to life. Both people longed for Jesus to come. And Jesus came on a different timeline than they, they anticipated. He blew away all their expectations and showed them that resurrection is our future. It's the future of Jesus, right? This is Jairus before the cross and the resurrection. It's his future, and because it's his future, it's our future. And the Spirit's in our hearts as a guarantee that one day we will be raised from the dead with him. So why do I share this as an application? As we wait for Jesus, here's four simple things. I don't know. I like kind of outline just because I'll forget unless it's like points. So bear with me. Four simple things to do as we wait together. In Advent, let's pray. Pray for Jesus to come into your present darkness, whatever that is. You know what it is and God knows. Some people may not know, but pray that he'll enter into there. The prayer of Advent is come, Lord Jesus. We're in Advent all the time, not just in a season. We're always waiting for Jesus to come. So ask him perennially, come, Lord Jesus. Where, he, you, where you need it most, ask him to come there. And then second thing, trust. So pray and then trust. Trust his timing as you wait. That if he tarries to come on your timeline, believe that all is not lost. Resurrection is coming. If he tarries, all is not lost. He's coming. He's going to make all things new. Thirdly, pray, trust, expect Jesus to meet you when you gather with his people in this space. Expect him to be here because he is. He promises when just two are gathered in my name, I'm here in your midst. So expect him to be here when you gather. Don't just go through the motions. Don't Settle for a numb heart. Ask him to break in. If you're numb this morning, or if you're numb any morning, ask him to break in and soften it up with his love. And then finally, go. As you wait, we go. To others with his grace that Jesus was dying to give us. We go. So we pray, we trust, we expect, and we go as we wait for Jesus. For why? He's always with us to the end of the age. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I needed it. I need it every day. And Lord, we all need it. We need you to come. And one of the ways you come is through your word. So we thank you for the gathered church. We thank you for, I thank you for Grace Mills River and what you're doing here. Pray that you would continue to bless these people, that they would be people who wait with faith and trust and expectancy. And that they would be people who go, just like you came for them. That they would go uh, to their friends, to their neighbors, to their co-workers, to their families. And share the love, the grace that changes everything. We pray all this in his name. Amen.